there's been a lot of expansion in my life, really, in terms of uh, learning. You know, I've been uh, doing this these online uh, courses, um, which is um, how the. I don't know if you're going to be talking about this this new album, but um, that's what kind of gave rise to this this record. Basically, I was just sitting, as it were, in a classroom, except it was my garden, listening to the teachings of uh, Sri Prashant Iyengar, and in fact, um, all of the Iyengar family, and um, also um, taking part in local Mumbai yoga classes. His name specifically comes up, I think, in the press material and some interviews you've done. How did you end up gravitating towards him specifically? Well, um, I've been practicing Iyengar yoga for a while now, and my mother is, in fact, an Iyengar yoga teacher, and she began studying with BKS Iyengar himself in 1981 in Pune, and she traveled there every year to work with him. So I sort of grew up with that that ethos in the house. And um, so my gravitating towards Iyengar yoga was kind of natural. Um, it took me a little while to to get there in a more serious fashion. Um, and then, um, then I traveled to India before the pandemic with my mother to study a little bit. And then, then during the pandemic, I just happened to notice that Prashantji was was teaching on YouTube, and he was also teaching with his nephew Srinit. Uh, they're doing a course which they're still doing, which I'm still doing. Kind of an an in depth, well, as in in depth as they could get in these pretty in depth um, study of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Um, so I started doing that. And just my brain exploded. You said there was a turning point when you got into it in a more serious fashion. What is what what does serious mean in this context? It means it became more of a you know when I first was doing it, I was quite a casual practitioner, go to classes every once in a while, and uh, but what I mean by more serious is it's become. A much more interior practice and a philosophy which is more and more the way that I'm trying to live my life now. And, um, you know, it's an ethico religious practice, as Prashant Iyengar says, and a much, much deeper than just merely an asana practice. There's, it's Ashtanga yoga and there's eight limbs and, uh, they're all intertwined with each other. And uh, so in the practice of asana and pranayama and, and also getting onto the verge of pratyahara, which is the involution of the senses, the practice has become, you know, quite subsuming. I'm not saying that I'm a, an advanced practitioner. I'm not at all. I'm a student and I'm a fairly average student. It's just that I'm becoming absolutely immersed in it and needing it more and more and becoming more and more involved. 
when you say you're you're an average student, mm-hmm. what does it mean to be a good student of this practice? I think it means to have a level of devotion. I don't think you need to be ad- an advanced asana practitioner. I mean, there are many star practitioners who can basically do anything with their bodies, but really that's actually not the, in the end, the, the point of yoga. And, you know, these, these great teachers here know that. Um, it's, it's much, much deeper than that. But actually there, there's, um, in, in the, in the, um, sutras of, of Patanjali, there is an outline of the various different types of, of student. Um, there's, uh, what's called a dull student. Um, and then there's a, there's, there's just about three different categories, sort of medium, I guess four, keen and then ultra keen. But, you know, when, when Prashantji is teaching, he's talking about, you know, he, he, he often says, you know, commoners like us, referring to himself and all of us students underneath him. And, you know, to me, he is rather like a monk. Um, he's, I, I think that he's a, a master. Is that a false sense of modesty or? On his part? No, not at all. Not at all. Because the more you study, the more you realize what a oceanic and beyond oceanic subject it is. And you start to realize, you know, how there are actually saints and sadhus and rishis in the world. These extraordinary uh, people who are leaders, you know, like the Dalai Lama or Gandhi or, you know, people come along who are saints and they, until you start studying the subject, you don't really know how much you don't know. And, and, and it, you know, he says that the process of knowledge is a process of disillusionment. And that's true. You know, you, you, you think, okay, I've learned such and such. I've learned this thing. I've learned this step. And then the next day you say, ah, okay, that step was not fully understood by me. Now I understand it to this extent. And that thing that I believed yesterday I'm was actually mainly an illusion. This today is now a, a different, deeper understanding. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. So <laughs> I suppose somebody, I think m- probably most of us, well, this is a sweeping generalization, and I don't even know if it's, um, I don't think it's accurate at all. I just, I don't even know, having studied with, not studied with Prashant Iyengar, but s- s- listened to his teachings online, I don't even know if I come up to the, 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 the level of an average student. You think you might be dull? I think I might be dull, yeah. But I don't care. I, I, the 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 point is that it's so deeply enriching my life and so so deeply helping me to sort out the chaos of my mind that i'm more and more uh, addicted to it. it just feels like diving into a clear pond that's reviving me 
a clear, clear lagoon that's reviving me, you know. So I don't care what about the label, you know, what kind of student I, the, the, and I used to feel, and I, you know, I think people still do feel a certain level of competition, especially when they go to classes, you know, looking over and seeing, oh Christ, you know, that person is doing that pose and I'm just nowhere near it. But that's really, that's not yoga at all. When I think of yoga, when most people think of yoga, it is that the act, it is a physical act. It is an act of stretching. What is it to you? The very big and broad and simplistic question is what, so what is yoga? Yoga is the, um, is the, the restraint of the fluctuations of consciousness in order to let the seer dwell in the seer's own state. <laughs> Untangle that. How, if at all, does the physical aspect play into that? That's a good question. Um, well, Iyengar himself talks, and I found it very striking, talks about the connection between the skin and the soul, and that they are connected. And so our body is our embodiment, and it's the embodiment in which our soul dwells. And therefore... We have to be good to our body and make sure that every cell in our body is given the space that it needs to be in health. And um, this facilitates mind being in health, which facilitates a kind of path towards communion with your higher um, sense of intelligence, right? Your higher self, which then puts you on a path towards seeking or being able to, you know, have the, the vigor and the health enough to seek that spark of divinity within yourself. You mentioned your chaotic mind before and the role that it plays in, I guess, untangling your chaotic mind. Do, do you feel that you have? a particularly chaotic mind or have had? I feel that we all do. I feel that mind is a great mischief maker. We're all, um, if unless we practice something opposite to that, we're all sort of enslaved to the, the vagaries that the, the vasanas, the, um, inclinations, not the inclinations. What's the word? The, the, um, I'm trying to think of the English word for the word vasana, meaning tendencies. We have tendencies, and the yogis would say, you know, it's from its karma and it's from karma of former lives, but also we have a tremendous junk in there. You know, we have attachments and aversions, we have ambitions, we have dislikes, we have hatred, we have greed, we have anger, we have fear. And normally our mind is in an involuntary mode. It's just shooting around when it's not in our control. In fact, it's, we are in its control, right? We are uh, just kind of candles in the wind, to quote Elton John. We're just being blown around um, by the sort of brutality of our own minds. 
And we need to calm the mind and soothe the mind. It's the ego, really. Uh, I was just listening to Prashant the other day who said that um, there's, there's this concept called asmita, which is, can mean ego, and it can also mean the sort of pure essence of I-ness, right, identity, but in its lower ego state. Ego in the Freudian sense? Yeah, in its lower state, it's ego in the, in the Freudian sense. And um, it's the root of, of all our problems. And um, so, and another teaching is that, which is, comes through very strikingly in these uh, sutras, is that mind and breath are, are connected. They're, they're like two sides of the same coin. And so if you can, during, in, in these yogic techniques and yoga practices, have the, the breath be the leader, right? So that the mind has to follow the breath rather than, for example, right, in our normal everyday life, we're just being, we're reacting, we're having thoughts, we're having choices, we decide, okay, I'm going to go do this, I'm going to do that, and that's mind, right? And our breath is always there, along with our mind, following the mind. And our breath is therefore jagged or panicky or, you know, it's whatever sort of emotion the, the mind sparks. But in, in yogic techniques, if you can say breath is going to be the leader and mind will be the follower, so you're actually immediately in a state of mindfulness, as we call it in the West, following the breath, we can calm the mind using all sorts of different yogic techniques like sa- silent sound forms, which I write about in the, the album, um, and mantras. And us in asana practice and in pranayama practice. And when we've calmed the mind, then we can make the mind fit, uh, qualified to be the leader. And then, and that's when, you know, we can, in, in these pranayamic techniques of, it's the, not the manipulation of prana, which is this cosmic energy, but it's the, the, um, the ayama um, part of the word, which I'm trying to find in my in my scattered brain, regulation, the regulation of prana, and svasayam, which is the regulation of breath. And anyway, so this produces not only a quiet mind, but it mm, takes you into the the, the 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 sort of the borderline of a sort of meditative state which I find more and more nourishing in my life. And this is probably a very overly simplistic way of thinking about it, but I do meditate and I have picked it up. And there's a very, an easy way into meditation is to just to focus on your breath. Yeah, exactly. It really is sort of a direct pathway into mindfulness. Yes. And that's... um and then you can see exactly how they're they're so intimately connected, mind and breath. It is a funny thing about language. You've been so immersed in this that the Indian words are coming more, more readily than, than the, the English words. Than the English ones, yeah. 
It's true, yeah. I mean, I'm not a student of Sanskrit. I hope to be at some point um, because that's the logical next step um, to studying Samkhya philosophy and, and yoga, Patanjala philosophy and psychology and these sutras. And so I really do um, want to do that. But you end up learning quite a lot of vocabulary and connecting the – because yoga is an experiential um, art, and that's 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 where asana really comes in, I think, as well. It it leads you into a sort of physical experience of these high high higher consciousness states. I think a necessary part of this, especially explaining it to an outsider as you are right now, is having to speak in some like fairly abstract terms to get the point across. But you know, as as you're experiencing this day to day. And I, you know, I imagine if I'm experiencing something fairly profound on a day to day basis, I'm going to want to, to tell the people in my life about it and, and attempt to, to convey some of that information. Do you find that, that it is or can be difficult to convey your learnings? Oh, yeah. I, and I don't have any reason to convey them unless anybody is interested and asks me about my yoga practice. But I, I do talk about it with, you know, my nearest and dearest and, uh, cause it's so what I'm going through at the moment. And it's also difficult to describe in words experiences because experiences are not experienced in words often and they're not experienced in language, especially when you've quiet, quietened down your, your mind. You experience things in images, perhaps, or in feelings and words as well, because you try to describe, I suppose, in the, sometimes in the experience, you try to find the words for it, I suppose, as well. But that's, um, one of the int- intriguing aspects of, of the, in the first chapter of, of the sutras, you know, where Patanjali is talking about, um, the five different types of fluctuations of consciousness. He's talking about how we have pratyaya, which is direct perception. And then we have viparyaya, which is contrary knowledge. I found that so fascinating that we have, I mean, and it's not just like their example is you see a snake and you go, there's a snake in the corner. And then you realize it's a coiled rope. But we have that about so much in our life. It's like the process of, of knowledge being disillusionment. You know, you go, the thing that I know, knew yesterday was in fact a delusion. I was actually deluded. And then the, the third um, aspect, I think it's called, if I can remember the word rightly, is vikalpa, which is sometimes translated as imagination, but it's more a kind of, it's connected to language as well. And it's a kind of, I think of it as, and maybe this is, this is wrong. It might be wrong understanding, but, um, as like a poet, poetic language in order to describe something that can't be described. And they say that script, scripture is often that, or poetry is that. Like, and the and the the example they will give would be like a um, son of a barren woman 
or a sky flower, you know, things that don't exist, can't exist, are impossibilities, but we, we understand somewhat what it means. So, and then there's a uh, memory, smriti, which is a large part of our, a huge, enormous part of our consciousness, I guess, and also then sleep, which is a huge mystical field, which I don't understand at all. The poetic aspect that you describe rings true, and it's something that I think I really came to figure out much later in life than I probably should have as somebody who I'm a fairly verbal person. I write for a living, you know, obviously mm-hmm. a podcast and interview with people, but the value of in language metaphor and in painting yeah. symbolism and, mm-hmm. and the attempt to really to convey the, the, maybe in some cases the words just don't even exist yet. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the genius of the great poets, you know. They put language together in such a way that we feel or we experience, we, we experience the tr- great truth, the great beauty. It's a revelation. and Things that make you feel things that you didn't realize you, you, you could yes, feel and yeah. that you can't really qualify or quantify. Yeah. The religious aspect is interesting to me because I, a lot of people just in general balk at the idea of religion in, in mm. any context. What's your relationship to that part of this practice? It's called Ishvara Pranidhan, which means surrender to the Lord. And that's supposed to be, well, that is an integral part to the yoga, the Patanjala yoga, Ashtanga yoga. But it's not taught here in the West um, the way they teach it in India. And, you know, when... BKS Iyengar was initially invited over to the West. He started teaching here. Um, he was asked not to bring the religious aspect into it. The, I suppose it's Prashant Iyengar describes it as Sanatana Dharma. It's a Dharma. Our Darshana, a school of philosophy, a school of thought, and it's, um, part of it is it's 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 supremely devotional the the end is the end mean the end of sorry the end um state of yoga is supposed to be oneness with the lord but that that part of the practice as i said is not and I don't know why. I mean, I think religion, religion is a, is a buzz. It's a, it's a, it's got, um, bad connotations because of all the terrible, um, things associated with it. You know, when you use that word, people have all sorts of connotations that you don't intend. So, I mean, I, I think the, the closest word, it's not a very good word because it sounds a bit, um, trite is spiritual but i think that i'm a i'm a you know a seeker i want to find uh the the good life in in the socratic way of understanding that phrase and uh i want to find peace and I want find, to find peace from my chaotic mind. And I don't want my chaotic mind to always be in charge of me. 
And so that's my, and I find peace when I've, when I'm in a, in a place of uh, feeling like I'm in communion with whatever, with what I understand as div- divinity. You converted to Judaism later in life. Is that, yeah. I grew up Jewish myself and, and at least on a very basic level, it doesn't sound like these concepts are incompatible. No, not at all. I was only, um, I think it was about 20 through 25, maybe when I converted and we got married soon after that. And I, that was part of my path, seeking path, I think. And I, and, you know, I was always attracted and interested in the uh, more mystical aspects of Judaism in, in Kabbalah and in, um, Hasidism. I loved the, um, uh, the, the, the wisdom of the rabbis, you know, Luria, Isaac Luria, and the, the mysticism of those people, and studied that, yeah, and studied Hebrew and learnt, learnt a bit of uh, that, not, not conversational Hebrew, I can't speak Hebrew, but um, learnt a bit of, um, spent a year learning a bit of biblical Hebrew, which was great. You don't do anything halfway, do you? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, probably. <laughs> I probably do. I have a little bit of this in me, too. But the moment you hear about something that interests you, you, you want to know everything about it. Oh, uh, yeah. Yes, yes, I do. And, you know, it, it, it was, it's been a while. I was feeling mm, a little bit dried up, you know, and I felt... At one point in my life, I felt I went through sort of a difficult, like a nadir of my life, which actually ended up being the best thing in the world for me because I changed so many things. So many things about me changed. But then after that, I thought, well, God, I don't don't feel like writing any music at all. I don't feel it coming and I'm okay. You know, it's fine. I don't know if I'll ever act again. And I'm strangely, I'm okay with that too. I'm just sitting in my garden and listening to these teachings and that's fine. And was this a recent occurrence? Yeah. I, you know, during COVID, I was not feeling at all creative. And it was that weird time for all of us. And I think, you know, it was very traumatic time for the world. I think the world is in a bit of PTSD from it. But it became a very, very deeply healing ride for me and um, continues. You know, it's, it's a, this, pra- this yoga practice is, is a revelation to me. And, the, and also, um, you know, from it sprang this, this music, which I've been really enjoying, you know. I, I loved writing it and, I, and I'm getting ready to perform it which I'm also loving. Has music traditionally played a, maybe a therapeutic or cathartic role for you? Mm, oh, yeah, I think so. So this really sort of came in and filled that vacuum. Yes, yes. Um, and it's a joyful practice, you know. Just singing, you know, just singing in the shower makes you feel happier. It makes your body reverberate. I went through something similar. I think a lot of people did. I, you know, I, I, I don't 
know that this applies to you, but I, I often talk about anhedonia, which is tied to fairly deep depression and it, Mm. you lose your ability to really enjoy music and movies and And then there's a creative side to that as well. I certainly know that that was something that, that I experienced and Mm. I just feel empty without having those things in my life. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the one thing about, um, having a, more devotional practice is that you 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 find that succor from from within right and you find this amazing world that you didn't know was there and it's got nothing to do with your mind or your ego or anything it's completely it's there and complete all on its own and for you to discover that's what's so extraordinary to me but i do feel I, I must admit, you know, without a creative outlet, I, I feel a bit deadened. It's true. One day you pick up a guitar and start playing again, or how does that come back? Well, I had a dream. I, <laughs> um, I dreamt. The mysterious sleep state that we were talking about before. I guess so, yeah. So I had a dream, and um, there was a person, sort of shadowy figure, playing this drum beat, and he said, uh, I know this, and we were all in a lecture hall, and I we were students, and I he said, I know there's somebody here who can sing this. And I thought, oh, Christ, I hope he's not talking about me. And then he said, don't be afraid, sing it. And so I thought, oh, Christ, well, okay, I, I'm not to be afraid. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to sing this. And so I did, and then woke up and remembered it. And I thought, well, then... And I liked it. And I thought, well, what can be the words to this song? And then this, the, the first three yoga sutras, you know, came to me in, in English. And I actually, I used one of the Sanskrit lines. And so I, that became the song. And I sent it to my mother, who is, you know, she was my first Iyengar yoga teacher, and to my teacher in Mumbai. And they liked it very much, and and so then then I found I wrote another one, and then I the th- the third one I wrote was also from a dream. It's a memory of a dream that I had as a child, and then I realized, oh wait a minute, I'm I think I'm writing a, a record here, an album, because the songs have have a theme, you know the their bookended. Well, the first song is about the first three sutras or is the first three sutras and and then i'm going up through the the chakras right which are these esoteric energy centers in the body these seven chakras main chakras i know there's lots and there're lots that i don't know about but um prashant ayengar was talking about the chakras and about their deities apparently they have deities that are in charge of them as do all of the bits and pieces in our bodies, and uh, they're connected with the elements, and they have bija mantras, they have seed seed sounds connected with them. And I was feeling very peopled within, you know, it was like I, I just came into this sort of courtly dance of all these... <laughs> starting to get crowded in there. It was like, what's going on? And uh, yeah, so... It was a funny feeling, and 
rather a very joyful feeling. And so that's what started inspiring me. As somebody who may or may not be dull, I know the jury's still out on that. Mm -hmm. Is it difficult to, to sort of to have the confidence to be able to to put something like this on on record, uh, something that you know you you admit that you maybe you only know a a small corner of it. No, I don't think so because it's I'm so it's it's really about I'm not trying to be um, a teacher and I'm not trying to be it's not yoga music it's not music to do I wouldn't do. It's not meditative music, it's pop music, really. But it's just inspired by my experiences, which, you know, has been the case for many of my writing in the past, much of my writing in the past. And uh, I didn't really feel, and I also felt like it's good to sing joyfully about, about love of, of God or love of, love of, you know, seeking something. And that's, you know, people have been doing it for thousands of years. Uh, devotional uh, music is very tied in with folk music. It's very tied in with all sorts of different ethnic groups. And it's a, it's a, it's a possession of folk. We get to sing and be joyful in that. It's a way to offer praise and it's a way to express joy. It express, you can express many different things, of course. But so th- in that sense, I felt, um, yeah, I felt really, really good about it. So not to use the S word, but so there is a sense in which this is spiritual to you and almost, almost religious, although maybe uncertain who that devotion is being channeled toward? No. No, I'm certain who the devotion is being channeled toward. The the devotion is being channeled toward God in gratitude. I'm not saying that I'm like a born-again Christian or I'm a great, I'm a good person um, or I'm, you know, that I'm like... I'm not a good person. I'm a flawed person, like like we all are. But we have a um, a gift given to us, which is that we get to sing, sing, you know, praises. And uh, I wanted to do that. It's also it's you know some of the songs are um, kind of characterizing different qualities of different deities, you know, in a fun kind of way. But I end the um, record with, I've put the words of the Guru Vandana uh, to um, music at the end. And that is a prayer that we all say at the beginning of a yoga class. And Westerners say these too. And I am a Westerner, and so I get to say it too. And it's a, it's a, just a prayer of gratitude to our guru, to our teacher, and to the guru within, and to the, the lineage of gurus who came before. And, um, and I am deeply grateful to those gurus who came before. I'm deeply grateful to BKS Iyengar and the Iyengar family, as are all of us Iyengar students. And I'm deeply grateful to my mother for being my, my first teacher. 
and for being continuing to be my teacher. And so I, I uh, feel like it's a way of saying that. I've often in the past I've wanted to, I've felt an, an, a need to express gratitude, but it always sounded, it never, I never liked the way <laughs> the songs were no good. But um, I think I found a way to, to do it with this record. I would think on the face of it that sort of the polytheistic and the monotheistic ideas are in conflict. But at the end of the day, if I'm sort of understanding your relationship to a lot of this, it's it's less about it's more it's more a, a, an appreciation and the realization that there's something to be gained from from mm. all of these ancient practices. Well, you know, Sanatana Dharma is not um, polytheistic. Um, it's there's only one. Brahma, right? One Vishnu. It's just one God with many names and many different aspects of character. And so all of these different names and different um, iterations of different characters are different facets, I suppose. But, you know, we see these three entities echoed in Christianity, you know, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. We see the three entities echoed in in um Kabbalah, the, the Ain Sof and the um the um Ayan and the um Chesed and Gavura. And uh we see uh these three entities echoed in Sanatana Dharma and Patanjali Yoga, the three in the three gunas, which are principles, right? One is Rajas, which is activity and um, connected with energy. And there's tamas, which is connected with dullness. And then there's sattvic energy, which is connected with purity, right? I don't think that I'm, when I'm feeling, when I'm trying to connect to the divine, I'm not, I'm not, um, ah, going as it were to a pantheon of different gods i don't i don't um it's it's just the it's just the the oneness right you know there's that there's that joke make me one with all about the uh, hot dogs what is it what's the joke i think i get the premise but i don't know yeah. the joke so uh yeah it's not a a pantheistic religion the story about the dream is pretty amazing in that it sounds like that specific song at least uh, musically came to you pretty fully formed you woke up and yeah. you had the song in you yeah yeah i mean that's happened to me before where i've woken up and thought oh god i've just written the most fantastic song and then i play it to myself and i go that's just not fantastic at all Let's throw it in the waste bin. <laughs> when you're half asleep, a lot of things sound fantastic. <laughs> right. In the harsh light of day, not so much. Have you had that experience since? Um, no. I mean, all of these songs uh, did come to me in a different way from past writings of mine. They came to me in the form of melodies, you know, in the bathtub. Um, or And then I'd find that I was writing, you know, I wrote a little fugue. 
that I put on. To, uh, I, I have the harpsichord playing at the beginning of the last song on the record. And that came to me in the bath. And, you know, in, inspired by other pieces of music from, from film scores or f- classical music or, you know, other, other artists. But I found I wasn't with this record really sitting down with my guitar as usual. I was sitting down with mainly drum, drum loops, actually, when I was, if I was constructing a song from the ground up. Or there was one song I constructed around a mantra. And also um, the Tanpura, which has, uh, which feels like a relative of the bagpipes. I was brought up in Scotland and really love Scottish folk music. and. That has a drone in the background. This is something that I've noticed that there's something very cross-cultural about that droning sound, you know, yes, the exactly. didgeridoo or yep. tube and throat singing. I mean, yes. there's something strangely universal about that. It's true, isn't it? Yes. And so my, one of my, my yoga teacher was talking about the tempura. She was talking about it in relation to mantras, uh, like the universal sound of Om, how, you know, when you're tuning a tanpura and it gets in tune, the, the musician will put it down at, to tune the next tanpura. And when the next tanpura is in, perfectly in tune, the previous tanpura will start reverberating along with it. And so she was talking about the way we're like that. Um, it's a resonance. It's a resonance, yeah. And I thought, what? What is a tanpura? I'm going to check that out. And it and it really spoke to me. And yeah, inspired music and i and i thought this is really quite similar to scottish folk music in my in my brain is experience common as far as really having specific creative periods uh, you know do do you tend to write an album in a relatively short amount of time yes i think so yes although old songs l- linger around and you you uh, suddenly realize you've got a collection of them that might work together as an album. But um, yeah, I tend to go through creative spurts. And I know some people think that if you're not writing every day, you're not a writer. I think I, I tend to be like a writer sometimes. And then when the creative urge is gone, I look back and I think, uh, that's the time when I was a writer. <laughs> I have no idea how that stuff came out. I once dated somebody who was a writer, and and after we broke up, she told me that she would never date a writer again. Um, I, I think that, that it's that's not nice. I didn't take it too personally. I, I, <laughs> I, but I think there's sort of something to that as far as you know. It can be difficult to to be in a relationship with somebody who does something similar to you, or somebody who is really kind of wired in the same way. Um, <laughs> Do you find that there are times when it it can be difficult being a writer married to a writer? No, actually, no. We we um we get along great. Um, I'm amazed at my husband a lot. Uh, he's really a genius. Um, we were talking the other day about the creative urge, and I said it's like being in the tumble dryer. It's just like you can't sleep and it wants to come out and it's it's going to have its way with you and and you're not really 
you know, you find yourself getting up in the middle of the night saying, ooh, 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 I've got to get this down before I forget, before it goes away. You know, you know this because you're a writer. I feel much more peaceful when I'm not a writer. But um, I think you're selling it short. It is. It's wonderful being in that 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 almost manic state. Yeah, it's quite quite exhilarating. It's like being on a wonderful ride. It really is, and it's also a different. I think it's a like a different kind of communion as well. You know, and you know, I also feel that it's not really. It's it's from a different part of your brain. It's not from your ego, right? It's from a different part. And that part is a bit mysterious. Where are you with the acting thing now? I'm going to be doing a play next year in New York. Apart from that, I'm, I've got my music hat on. I'm getting ready to perform this album. Um, we're going to be doing a, a show at Joe's Pub on the 19th of September, and then a record release show at McCabe's in Los Angeles. Um, on the 24th of September. And then I'm doing some other things as well. And that's exciting because we're going to get uh, a lot of good musicians together and and uh, <laughs> try and find our way through this record. In what sense? It's a bit of a, a bit of a bit more of a composerly record than than just um than than songs. For example, one of the songs is a bit complex because it's it's four four time signature, but the song is written in three four above a four four time signature, and then it gets really crazy as well. I mean, there's more stuff in there too, and so for the first time, I'm having to print out scores and you know ca- count beats and you know like really try to get arrangements together. I mean, I put the arrangements together for the record, but now I have to put it together and make it um, cohesive and and make it comprehensible for other musicians. You are classically trained and capable of writing orchestral music. No, I'm I'm not classically trained, and I don't really have much theory. Um, but I am working on this great. You know, we all have these great digital audio workstations. So I've been making arrangements just with instruments, right, and sampled sounds and so forth on this logic is actually what I've been using. But then you can, um, it will show you the score of what you've been writing. And I do read music a little bit. And I did have, you know, piano lessons and singing lessons as a kid. And also, I've been having singing lessons as an adult, too. But as a child at school, you know, we we learned to read sort of rudimentary music, and I learned to read music playing the piano somewhat. I mean, I'm really terrible at it, but I can sort of muddle along. And so I can put things together for for people if I have a guide, you know, which this wonderful digital audio workstation supplies. I was going to say that one of the sort of primary differences between you know, the way you have to approach music and acting is you can one day get up and decide that you want to start putting together an album. It's with acting, with acting the way you do it, whether it's, uh, you know, stage or, or a movie, you, you have to, you have to decide now that you're going to be okay doing it next year. That's true. Yeah. 
also it's somebody else's work generally, unless you've written it yourself. So you have to climb into a persona that's not really yours. I do that with songwriting as well. Often, you know, I'll write as a character, uh, which I've done even on this record. Do you feel though that moving forward that one is going to take precedence over the other just generally in your life and career? Well, it never has done thus far. So not really. Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. I don't see that happening. In fact, you know, I'm, uh, I don't know. I, God, who knows? It's a, it's a, it's an exciting adventure or a scary ride. <laughs> Whichever way you look at it. <laughs> 